welcome to the Den of Dissidents. This is a show where we challenge the current culture and mainstream talking points of the day. What is the news telling us? What is the culture telling us? Where is our civilization headed? And by what standard do we judge these issues? Are you a dissident? Let's find out. What's going on, people? Welcome back. Before I get into the show, just want to talk a little about Liberty Classroom. What is Liberty Classroom? Well, first, sometimes I think back to my earlier education, high school, college, and earlier, and I think about what I've learned since then. And sometimes I ask myself, well, how come I wasn't taught this in history class? How come I wasn't taught this about world history, uh, American history, economics, social issues? On and on it goes. And I'm sure you've probably asked yourself the same question. How come they didn't teach me this in school? Well, this is where Liberty Class Classroom comes in. So Liberty Classroom was developed by Tom Woods, who is a uh, author. He's written several books, one being um, the, the Politically Incorrect Guide to American History and also uh, Meltdown which looks at the um, crash of uh, 2008. And he's written several other books. But anyway, he he went to Harvard and he also got a PhD from Columbia and he developed Liberty Classroom. He says that when he went to Harvard and Columbia, he came to the conclusion that, well, he says, I can say with certainty there's no place on earth where you're less likely to learn true history or indeed many other subjects than at an American university, which is crazy because those are elite Ivy League schools that people pay a lot of money for. Um, so he talks a lot about, well, there, there's a whole curriculum of different courses in Liberty Classroom with different professors. But there was a few interesting points that he makes. Um, in the introduction to Liberty Classroom, and he brings up um, a guy by the, a guy by the name of Richard Smith, who is a former editor of the British Medical Journal, and he says that um, the problem of medical research fraud is huge. The system encourages fraud, and we have no adequate way to respond. It may be time to move from assuming that research has been honestly conducted and reported to assuming it to be untrustworthy until there is some evidence to the contrary. How, dear friend, are you or your children expected to learn the truth when we, when what we laughingly call our institutions of higher learning are pathetic jokes? That's crazy. Because when you think of the universities, you think of some of our other institutions, I mean, people are becoming more untrustworthy. And like you said, they're becoming jokes. People don't trust the institutions anymore. They don't trust their governments anymore. And because we're, we're being fed so much propaganda and so much foolishness. How many times have you said to yourself while you were in college, you were being you had to take some crazy course that you felt served no purpose in your future or you, you just felt like you were not going to use this information? How many times have you felt that way? Like some of the information that you were being taught in school was just not going to be used once you left school. So, again, this is where Liberty Class comes comes in. Um, now, there's several courses here and several instructors that um, teach on a range of topics. 
He also says the, um, the standard version of U.S. history is the story of the gradual victory of progressivism and centralized power, which is supposed to have brought justice and prosperity to all. In that version of the story, the version every schoolboy learns while sitting in a classroom with all the president's portraits hung around the room, the people who rule over us are the heroes doing their very best to make our lives better. In our version, they're the villains. He also says, meanwhile, what's going on in the professional historical associations, every last one of their conferences, the Organization of American Historians, the number one such association is a prime example, is a worthless, ideologically, ideology, ideologically driven echo chamber obsessed with race, gender, and when they occasionally comment on current events, non-existent white supremacy. So, you know, what he's saying is that a lot of these universities and institutions are pushing this propaganda that's so um, obsessed with race, you know, making everything a race issue, incorporating the whole gender issue, um, white supremacy, all of this. You know, some people are like, listen, a lot of this is foolishness that you're talking about. Um, you're really just in, in, in introducing a lot of falsehoods or injecting a lot of falsehoods into American history and um, into the universities. Now, some of the courses, like I said, uh, being taught in Liberty Classroom are the American Revolution, a constitutional conflict, um, the history of conservatism and libertarianism, introduction to logic, U.S. constitutional history, Western civilization to 1500, Western civilization since 1500. So there's a whole range of different courses. I mean, you're talking about world history, economic history, um, U.S. history and more. So much more. You can um, check out Liberty Classroom while you're driving your car, doing your lawn, your laundry, whatever. You can listen to it in the audio version. You can watch the video lectures. Um, there's additional reading sources. So if you want to go deeper down the rabbit hole and you want to check out some books on the topics that they're talking about in the lectures, you can do that as well. Um, and lastly, he says, many Americans, and I suspect you are among them, are deeply unhappy about the direction of our country and the world. He says, thanks to Liberty Classroom, you can get a complete education in free market economics, enabling you to clearly and persuasively articulate the case for a free society to that large proportion of the American public whose opinions, unfortunately, sound like they came straight out of a seventh grade textbook. And he asked these questions. Are you interested in history and economics from a pro-freedom perspective, but don't know where to begin your studies or which sources you can trust? Do you wish you could defend yourself more effectively in discussions with people who call you selfish and evil for supporting a market economy or who try to sway you to socialism? Are your history teachers or professors giving you a biased view of history and you want the facts and arguments they're leaving out? Are you tired of media propaganda and eager for the truth? If that's the case, Liberty Classroom is for you and for me. So 
check it out because, you know, a lot of times, like I said before, I'm, I'm just, I'm coming across information that is so insightful and I'm just having to ask myself, why did they leave this out? Why wasn't I taught this? Where were these books? How come I wasn't introduced to this? And uh, it almost seems like my real education began after I left school, which is sad to say. And I'm sure a lot of people can say that. So again, you know me, you know, I like to promote truth. I like to talk about good sources, good information, good education, not being a dummy. All right. I'm talking to myself when I say that too, because like I said, I'm learning so much. So, you know, get educated. Um, Don't be a dummy. Liberty Classroom. Check it out. Peace. Welcome back to the Den of Dissidents. Today, I have special guest, Pastor Tommy McMurtry of Liberty Baptist Church. Um, Pastor Tommy also has a YouTube channel called The Spirit of Prophecy, Prophecy, in which he tackles some current day issues regarding scripture. Welcome to the show, Tommy. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on today. So I've been looking at a, a few of your videos and um, looking at your commentary on Israel and prophecy. And um, you do have some, I would say, unconventional um, <clears throat> talking points about the scripture and, and Israel, and especially now with the war going on in the Mideast. Um, this subject is being brought to the surface again. So I, I was watching a video you did the other day talking, well, asking a question, why do you support Israel? And um, just want to start off with that. In the video, you you were saying, um, telling people they should not be supporting Israel or and asking them um, to give a biblical reason for why they do support Israel. So why shouldn't people or Christians, non-Christians be um, supporting, why should they not be supporting Israel? Right. So my main problem with people supporting Israel is when they act like they are supporting the Israel of the Old Testament. I don't really care that much who people want to take political sides with. I mean, I obviously, I believe that Israel, uh, for lack of a better term, you know, they've, they conquered the land. Uh, they have a right to exist. And uh, if they want to, you know, to the victors go the spoils. They've defeated the Palestinians. They kind of have them under their thumb. Uh, I'm not looking to, you know, change things over there. My problem that people have is they are acting like supporting Israel is um, supporting the Israel of the Bible. They are not the Israel of the Bible. The blessing of Abraham is not on these people. And so Christians are going, and back when I made that video, it was before, way before October 7th, I think it was maybe two years ago, something was going on in Israel that had everybody doing the typical I stand with Israel routine and acting like they were doing it in obedience to the scriptures. And so I personally think standing with Israel is literally no different than standing with Ukraine, standing with England, standing with Poland. Uh, there is no special blessing for it. And so if your reasoning is simply, well, they're our ally in the Middle East, they're the only democracy in the Middle East, I like them better than Palestinians, that's fine. 
my thing is what is your Bible reason? And the Bible reasons that people are giving are greatly misusing the scriptures. Okay. So a lot of times I hear um, when, when people cite scriptures for the support of Israel, typically they start off with, or one of the, the most common scriptures is Genesis uh, 12, three. Mm. And um, I wanted to, well, I'm not going to read the whole scripture, but they use Genesis um, 12, three, which talks about, um, you know, God blessing the nation and he will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. A lot of people think that's referring to the modern state of Israel. What's your uh, take on that? Yes, they're they're just dead wrong. In fact, I just recorded a podcast today um, on the very subject of the Abrahamic covenant. People are applying the Abrahamic covenant to an ethnic group, to a UN creation from 1948, where the Bible is very clear. We can follow that covenant that God gave to Abraham. And in Genesis 12, when it said, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee, and thee shall all the families of the world be blessed, that was fulfilled. That was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. In Acts 3.26, it's, Peter is preaching to the Jews. And he said, unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning every one of you from his iniquities. So the families of the earth have already been blessed through Jesus Christ, who came from Israel. And Galatians 3.29 flat out tells us that Jesus is the one that the promises were made to. It says in Galatians 3.29, uh, um, I'm sorry, not uh, 29, uh, 19, it says, Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promises was made promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator so jesus is the fulfillment of that god gave abraham the land it, it did not go to all of abraham's descendants ishmael was not a part of it the bible says abraham gave everything that he had to isaac it did not go to all of isaac's descendants he had two sons esau and jacob Esau gave the inheritance to Jacob. Now, Jacob stole it when he deceived his father and stole the blessing, but then, but he had it either way. Jacob, he was, his name was changed to Israel and uh, Israel never gave the inheritance to any one member. He put Judah in charge. If you go read Genesis chapter 49, Jacob, Israel, put Judah in charge of his brethren, of the other tribes, and, he, and those tribes were to remain in submission to their father. Just like when I am, me and my wife leave the house, I might put one of the older children, I might put my oldest daughter in charge of the younger ones. I'm still an authority, but my daughter is to watch over the other ones and they are to listen to her. Jacob put Judah in charge of the other tribes and he said, the scepter shall not depart, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him should the gathering of the people be. And everyone agrees that Shiloh is a messianic prophecy referring to Jesus Christ. Judah was put in charge of the other brethren. They were all supposed to be in submission to Israel, to Jacob, to the commands that he gave them until Shiloh came. Well, guess what? Shiloh came. They were supposed to follow after him. Those who did follow after him 
after Jesus remained in the covenant. They held on to the promises. The apostles, they didn't quit being Jews. They were obedient. They listened to their father, Israel, and they accepted Jesus Christ. And so all those who are in Christ now, they are Abraham's seed. And it says in Galatians 3, 29, and if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And then in chapter four, verse 28, he says too, now we brethren as Isaac was, are the children of promise. So Isaac or um, Jesus is where the promise is fulfilled at, not an ethnicity. And so Christians giving that blessing that was to Jesus, to an ethnic group is completely unbiblical. So when it refers to, um, and you know, all the families of the earth should be blessed and, um, it, it talks about making you a great nation. That's not a prophecy for the future state of Israel as far as the it modern was, state of Israel. Well, it was, it doesn't find its fulfillment in the modern state of Israel. Jesus told Abraham, I have made thee a father of many nations, not just one nation, not just the nation of Israel. I mean, you could say Abraham is the physical father of uh, the Israel of the Bible days, but he was also the father of Ishmael, who uh, there's many nations that came from him, but ultimately the seed that was multiplied as the stars of heaven represent those who are in Christ. Jesus took on him the seed of Abraham, and Jesus is where we are preserved. Jesus is where we have eternal life. And so Jesus did come from Israel uh, for sure. So the the promises that God made to Israel, they were they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that uh, those of Israel who did not believe on Christ, those branches were broken off from the olive tree. They could still be grafted in if they abide not still in unbelief, but they are not a part of that covenant, the promises. Uh, those things were fulfilled through Christ, not not an ethnic group. Why do you think that um, churches and a lot of pastors, especially in America, interpret that scripture differently? Well, I I know this might seem like a harsh accusation, but it's just true. It's easy to prove. People don't read their Bibles. People are not <laughs> studying their Bibles. Most pastors, you know, they're aligned with a denomination, a Bible college, a camp, and it's uh it's a very it's very political thing. If, uh, if you're from the ministry world, things are very political, especially as a Baptist. Okay. I'm an independent fundamental Baptist. When you're an independent fundamental Baptist, if I just have the wrong person preach for me, I will get so canceled and excommunicated and all kinds of stuff. Well, when you start preaching certain things that aren't according to the party line, you get attacked pretty good. And I've definitely experienced that. So most people are just intimidated. They're afraid to look at what the scriptures say. And it's astounding how little people know about the Bible, about the Abrahamic covenant. And, and so most people's positions are politically motivated. Um, they're not scripturally motivated. And, um, and I mainly know the Baptist world. I'm not sure what your background is, but in the Baptist world, Baptist preachers, they watch a lot of Fox News. They're strong Republicans. And, um, but most Baptists are so weak in their knowledge of the scriptures, they're very easily intimidated when they're challenged. And so they know they're supposed to be bold, but they're only ever bold 
when they have someone they can hide behind. And so they're very bold when it comes to areas where they align with the Republicans because they can hide behind them. But it, once they have to deviate from Republicans, they become very sheepish. Uh, they're very quiet. And, uh, and the truth about Israel, truth about eschatology, it will get you creamed uh, in most Christian circles. And I've definitely experienced that, but mm -hmm. I'm not easily intimidated. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a good business model, right? No. <laughs> um, another scripture that people use is um, they use Jeremiah 29. Um, and when it talks about future predictions or prophecies about um, Israel being reestablished in the land. Mm. Um, so I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. I will bring you to the place from which I cause you be carried away captive so you in your opinion that's not applied that doesn't um get applied to the modern state of israel no that already happened um okay. jeremiah was written during the time of the babylonian while uh, while babylon was about to take them captive and if you read the book of jeremiah he's prophesying that they are going to be defeated by babylon that the temple is going to be destroyed he's thrown in prison for preaching that he he prophesied that Jerusalem was going to become heaps and dens of dragons and uh, and they threw him in prison because of it and some people could try to stand up for him because Micah had prophesied the same thing earlier Jeremiah prophesied the exact same thing and so sure enough uh, at the end of Jeremiah you know you have Babylon they come they take them over and they were in captivity for 70 years but just like God said God brought them out of captivity he restored them to the land and so you we can uh we see uh in the book of ezra that i know that comes before jeremiah in the bible but it also is after jeremiah chronologically and the book of ezra is showing their restoration to the land it starts out now in the first year of cyrus king of persia that was after the babylonian captivity that the word of the lord by the mouth of jeremiah might be fulfilled the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and put it in writing, and he basically commissioned them to go back and to rebuild their temple. So the Bible tells us that the prophecy of Jeremiah was fulfilled. The dispensational crowd, the pro-Israel crowd, ignore the book of Ezra and how it says that Jer the word of Jeremiah was fulfilled, and they're applying it to the future. So they're just they're just wrong. I don't know how else okay. to say it. They're just flat out wrong. Uh, one more scripture. What about Ezekiel 34, 13? And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their own land. People use yeah. that as a reference for 1948. Same thing. Ezekiel was, uh, Ezekiel was written during the captivity. That's when Ezekiel... Uh, Ezekiel prophesied it was it was during the captivity and that happened now here's where people get confused okay because uh, what they'll do is there are things in Jeremiah and there are things in Ezekiel that um, have not come to fruition but there are many things that did in fact come to fruition and if you can't ignore the fact that these prophecies were given during the captivity and they, they were promised to be restored to the land. They were restored to the land, 
but there was also many great things that did not take place. Now, there's a reason for that. If you go and you read Ezekiel especially, uh, Judah, they were given instructions for some things they were supposed to do when they went back to the land. When they went, uh, if they were, when they did these things, it was also prophesied that the Messiah was going to come. Daniel, the book of Daniel, even tells us, uh, gives us a timeline of when it would be. It'd be within 490 years. Well, the thing is, if you go uh, read Ezra and Nehemiah, if you go read Malachi, all books that chronologically are after Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Israel didn't do what they were supposed to do. Now the Messiah came just like he promised he would. But uh, we can't forget what Jesus said not long after the triumphal entry, which was his first coming. It was the day of visitation, he called it. It was the day he came to fulfill his end of things. But Israel had not done anything God told him to do. And Jesus, one of the things he said after he preached the fire out of him, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not behold your houses left unto you desolate. See, people, they go and they read those prophecies and they have this attitude that the prophet was looking into a crystal ball and he was saying, this is definitely what's going to happen. That is not always the case. Sometimes the prophet would speak, if you do this, then this will happen. If you don't do this, then this other thing will happen. The Ezekiel prophecies, it is spelled out for us. God told Ezekiel, go to Israel and you tell them these things. And God told Ezekiel, but you know what? They're not going to listen to you, but they will know that a prophet has been among you. So people read the prophecies of Ezekiel and they look at him and they act like they, they ignore the fact that he's saying, if you do these things, all these wonderful things will happen. They're ignoring that part and they read about the wonderful things and they say, this is definitely going to happen. Like, well, no, it's not. They didn't do what the prophet said to do, just like God said. It's in the beginning of the book. God said, I'm sending you because it's just the just thing to do, but they're not going to listen to you, Ezekiel. So for some reason, dispensationalists, they've rewritten Ezekiel as if they obeyed, or they've rewritten Israel's history as if they obeyed. No, they disobeyed. And when Jesus came, when his at the time of his coming, when the Messiah came, he said, your house is left unto you desolate. Mm. Uh, a lot of times when I get into conversations with fellow Christians, like I said, those, those are some of the scriptures that they use. So you were saying earlier that um, a lot of people don't read their Bible and the, the pastors are trying to be politically correct. So if the the uh, congregants aren't reading the Bible and you have the pastors that aren't reading the Bible correctly or they want to be political, I mean, where does that leave the church? Wouldn't that, that, would, that stirs up a lot of confusion. So now you just have a lot of biblically illiterate people. Well, I'll tell you exactly where it leads. It leads to thousands and thousands of Christians uh, supporting an antichrist system. You know, we have been strictly for, forbidden to do that. I mean, the uh, the Second uh, John uh, one seven says, "For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is deceiver and an antichrist." 
An antichrist is not someone who is just against Christ. Antichrist means in the place of Christ. The Jews reject that Jesus was the Messiah. They are waiting for another Messiah. That is antichrist. They do not believe he came in the flesh. And it said, whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. So here's what happens when Christians don't read their Bible. They get deceived into supporting an antichrist system. In 70 AD, 40 years after the death of Jesus Christ, God gave Israel 40 years to repent of killing the Messiah, and they refused to repent in spite of all the preaching that the apostles did to them. They refused to repent, and just like Jesus said, just like Daniel prophesied, their house was left desolate, Jerusalem was destroyed, they were scattered abroad through the whole earth, and now we literally have a movement a Zionist movement that started in the late 1800s where Christians are supporting the Jews returning to the land, which also it, it, they're supporting Israel. When God said, don't even bid them Godspeed, but they're supporting them. They're, they're trying to bless them. And the, uh, in Hebrews written to the Jews, it specifically says, Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Talking about outside the gate of the temple. He says, let us go therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. When Jesus brought in the new and better covenant, he was done with the temple. He rent the veil in two at, at the death and the cross. The writer of Hebrews told the Jews, leave the city leave the temple, follow Christ, bear his reproach. And today we have Christians calling Israel, calling Jews back to the land of Israel. They are supporting the rebuilding of a temple. When Hebrews showed us the blood of bulls and goats can't wash away sins, the blood of Christ is what wash away sins. He made a one-time sacrifice and for us to claim a sacrifice for sin again. It's like putting Christ to an open shame again. It is totally antichrist to support a rebuilding of the temple. Now, I do believe prophetically that the Jews will rebuild a temple, and I believe the world will unite in it. But understand, that will be the world uniting in rebellion against Jesus Christ who replaced the temple. Jesus said, destroy this body, and in three days I will raise it up again. The temple couldn't take away sins, but the body of Christ did. The blood of Christ did. Jesus did rise again from the dead. He ripped the veil of the temple. He God got rid of the Levitical priesthood and replaced it with the priesthood of Jesus Christ after the order of Melchizedek. So Christians should not support this Zionist state. It's bad for Jews. It leads them away from Christ. And um, and, you know, I absolutely do not hate Jewish people. I love Jewish people, but I care about their souls and I don't, I, I love them enough to tell them the truth and they, they need to forget that land of Israel and follow after Christ. You, you talked about, um, Jews waiting for a Messiah and I think you said that that Messiah is a false Messiah mm -hmm. because absolutely. often, 
growing up in church, I've heard that, you know, um, yeah, Jews are looking for a Messiah. So you're saying that they're waiting for basically a counterfeit. That counterfeit will, will be the Antichrist? Yes, absolutely. Yep. Okay. And Jesus said, you know, I have come in my Father's name, and, you know, you haven't received me. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. And, and they will. The, uh, I believe uh, there is a man of sin that is yet to be revealed, and I believe that the Jews uh, will accept him, and I believe Christians will support it. I'm convinced of that. I mean, mm. uh, I, you know, Greg Locke just recently went on this rant and was talking about how he's hoping that Netanyahu blows up the Dome of the Rock so they can build that third temple and usher in the coming of Jesus, and it's just like, why on earth would any Christian support the rebuilding of a temple? That which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. That's what it said in Hebrews, and that was referring to the things of the temple. And they did go away. Israel, even the early church, they had a hard time disconnecting themselves from the temple. God had to get rid of it. It needed to go. It was a, it was a stumbling block. It was a constant uh, draw for Jews, especially who would get saved, to go back to the things of the temple but uh, those things were temporary. Those things, uh, those carnal ordinances, those were things that were imposed on them, the Bible says, until the time of Reformation. Well, Jesus brought in that time of Reformation, and he removed the things of the temple, He and he uh, offered up himself as a sacrifice. And so now we have the filling, we have the Holy Spirit that he gives us when we get saved, and that Holy Spirit, cleanses us and is what makes us able to do the service of God. We are all priests as Christians today. You know, we, there's one high priest, Jesus Christ, but we believe as Baptists in the priesthood of the believer. Well, how can we be priests without all the sanctifying and the ceremonial things? Um, we have something better than those washings and all those things they did. We have the Holy Spirit. And so we can approach the throne of grace boldly we can go to God anytime. We can do the work of the Lord at any time. Every week, people in our church, they go out, they go door to door, ready to preach the gospel, and they literally are able to bring people to God by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. They can pray with them. They get saved right there. How, how can just an ordinary person do that who might have forgot to shower that day? I'll tell you why, because they have a better cleansing than what the temple could offer. They have the Holy Spirit inside of them and so we can do great works for okay. god wow you in one of your video, videos you i think you said god is done with national israel and israel didn't come back in 1948 um when you say god is done with national israel uh, okay it, if that is the case then what is the current state of israel that we have now and it didn't. If if it didn't come back in 1948, then what is this that we have now? What this came back the, in 1948? The beast. The beast. Uh, you know uh, that that's what happened. So basically, uh, when I say God's done with Israel, God is done with a a physical nation. God is done with a physical city. Okay, we ha here we have no continuing city. We seek one to come. They did have a city. Jerusalem was the place where men ought to worship. But Jesus said, you know, the time is coming where you're not going to say in this mountain, 
you know, but uh, we're going to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth for the father seeketh such to worship him. So God's done with that. To them were committed the oracles of God. That's a reference to the things of the temple. Jesus finished all those things. So they have no, they have no king, earthly king anymore. They don't have a temple anymore. They don't have a capital of Jerusalem anymore. They don't have the blessing of Abraham on them as a nation. God replaced that with the spiritual people who uh, we don't have a earthly headquarters. We have a heavenly one, but it's better because now we can take the gospel anywhere. People don't have to come to Jerusalem. We can go to them. We can take the gospel to the whole world and God's not going to go back to that system. So what we have now is better. And all those who were of Israel in the first century, those who believed on Christ continued in that and they, and they got something better. But now what we have today, it is, it's literally a UN creation that ultimately is going to lead to the rise of the antichrist or as revelation calls him the beast. And the Bible talks about a beast whose deadly wound was healed. And I, I believe you could say that the physical nation, it was, it was wounded with a deadly wound in 70 AD, but it miraculously is going to come back someday. It's not there yet. They don't have a temple. They don't even really have full control of the land. Okay. I believe something started in 1948, but I believe it was something evil. It was something very bad. It was something that was prophesied that was going to come. But uh, somehow Christians saw it as a good thing. But either way, they jumped the gun on it because it didn't fully come to fruition. In fact, in 1948, no one was like, hey, Israel is reborn. People didn't really start talking about that until the 70s. In the mm. 70s, with Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth, he, you know that was when all of a sudden they were informed, hey, you know that event that happened 22 years ago that most people didn't pay attention to? That was big because we're telling you it's big. And then Christians were just like, oh, wow. And the 70s is an embarrassing time in church history uh, it's because there was a lot of weird stuff that went on during that time. And a lot of bad theology got pushed during that time. And um, that generation is still around and in leadership in a lot of places. And um, they're, they still have a lot of that baggage from all that the hype of the 70s. Mm. Interesting. I mean, when I was younger, I remember I, I had a book by John Hagee called The Beginning of the End. I think mm. I was like 14 years old. And uh, man, it was just that that was a very dramatic book. But I got I started getting into prophecy and I was really fascinated by the book and Revelation started going down this rabbit hole. And um, and I see and this is what has been the uh, the popular um these have been the popular talking points in a lot of the churches that I, I went to. Um, you, earlier you talked about Jer Jerusalem. Um, so Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. So uh, when Trump was in office, he reestablished, I think, the, the capital hmm. in Jerusalem. So a lot of Christians and pastors have said that you know, this is a this is a fulfilling of prophecy, and this is a prophetic mark that has been established because Trump, you know, reestablished the capital. So you're saying 
that has no significance. No, nobody can give a scripture showing the U.S. president, you know, getting behind, uh, you know, Jerusalem becoming the capital. Now, here's what that did mean. Okay, this is something that I wish I could get Christians to get a hold of is in the, you know, in America, we think the rest of the world is like us and it's not. Okay? And um, in Israel, you do, you have your Jews who they are guided mainly by tradition. Tradition is everything to them. And and then you have Muslims who also have a lot of traditions, who have their own religious theology. So the thing is, there's different realities in our world. Much of our world does not recognize Israel as a nation. A, a lot of the world doesn't. Um, in America, because we recognize it as legitimate and Palestine is illegitimate, we just assume that's the facts, that's reality. Well, not really. Not if a lot of the world doesn't agree with that. So the thing is, the more nations that get behind Israel, the more it legitimizes their occupation of the land. And so that's why they're always calling on support for Israel. That's why Jews allow Christians to go to places like the Wailing Wall, which is like one of the, their most holy places they can go. They let people like me go there and defile the place and you know walk around take pictures because ultimately every time we go there and we follow their little customs we wear our hats and things you know we're sh we're sh we're legitimizing the fact in our minds in their minds in the minds of the world that that land belongs to them they need the world behind them and so that's why this attack that everybody can't figure out how it went under israel's radar you know when these kind of things happen, it gives them an excuse to take more of the land and um, and they, they need the world backing them on these things because it's not clear who has the land. It's not clear who's in charge. Uh, you want to look into something really complicated, just try to figure out who actually owns the Temple Mount. You know, that's a, it's a debated thing. We have multiple realities. If you ask Israel who owns the Temple Mount, they'll say that we do, that we're technically in charge, but they allow the Muslims to um, be the custodians of it. The Jordanians uh, are kind of the custodians of it. The Waqf, are, they're the ones who kind of police it. But Jerusalem reserves the right to go there if they feel the need to do that. And But the Muslims... They reject that idea that the Israelis are actually in charge. And so every once in a while, the Israelis, they do something to let everybody know, hey, actually, we're in charge. In fact, I think it was in April, um, they did a raid on the Al-Aqsa Mosque because the Muslims weren't following the rules. And uh, they beat up a bunch of them. And um, in the October 7th, the Palestinians were saying this is a response to the raid on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But, you know, either way. You know, it's it was kind of like in 2020 when the government was trying to shut down churches. The government thought it had the authority to tell us to stay home, but most churches are like, wait, the government can't tell us what to do as a church. And so there was, there was kind of a different realities there. So people mm -hmm. like me who kept the church open, I don't think I broke the law because the constitution, it gives us the right to, to have church. And so mm -hmm. 
that that's kind of how it is with Israel. So Trump moving the U.S. embassy there, it made a strong statement that Israel or that America, which is a very uh, you know a superpower, we recognize Israel's you know claim to the land, and we are behind them, and that said a lot to the world. And but that's okay. why they're constantly doing these you know, pro-Israel things. They need the world behind them because they do. They want to drive the Palestinians completely out of the land. And and, and the Palestinians want to get rid of them too. You know, they always do it from the river to the sea uh, thing. But, you know, the Israelis want to get rid of them completely too. So, mm-hmm. so when it comes to the land itself, um, it did belong, scripturally speaking, it did belong to the Jews at one point, correct? It, yeah, it belonged to those that were in the covenant. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And so now you're saying that it Jerusalem has been destroyed. Um, it's done away with. So scripturally speaking, who would that land belong to now? You're saying it doesn't belong to the Jews anymore? or well, te- Now, technically, technically it belongs to Jesus Christ. But right. <laughs> at the same time, um, yeah, to the victors go the spoils. I mean... You know, the Romans were, you know, they had control of it after 70 AD, you know, and then, you know, you've had different empires throughout history that have had control. You know, the Muslims had control for, I forgot how many hundreds and hundreds of years they had control. So the thing is, you know, in the reason I recognize, you know, Israel, and I hate calling it Israel, but that's, that's what they've named themselves. Uh, but, you know, the Bible said the beast would have the names of blasphemy on it. They don't have the right to t- claim that name, but they have. And I think it's it is it's it's very blasphemous. But, um, you know, yeah, they won. That's all there is to it. You know, the Who Indians won? had this land first, but, you know, the white people came and took it over. You know, right. yeah. you know, what are we going to do? Just say, like, sorry, and just give it back. <laughs> You know, yeah, it's the and, nature and of war. back to England or something, you know. So, um, <laughs> when you, know, you say so they I, won, what's it, that? When you said you said they won, who are you referring to? Israel. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, because uh, the Ottoman Empire had it, and then it was taken over by Britain, and then you know, and then Britain they got you know them and America, you know, they were the ones that got behind Zionism, and part of the reason Britain was fine with turning it over to Israel was just because of the fact that the Zionism and all the Jews that were moving in in mass, because they had actually put a stop to it. You know, the Brit Brits did because so many Jews were coming back so fast. It was creating a lot of turmoil because Jerusalem for a very, very long time, they had peace as far as between in, in, in the city of Jerusalem, there was peace between the Muslims, the Christians and the Jews. Today you have the fort, you have the, Christian quarters, you have the Armenian quarters, you have the Muslim quarters and the Jewish quarters. It's been that way for over a thousand, like a thousand years. It's been that way where the Christians have had their holy sites, the Muslims have had their holy sites, Jews have had their holy sites. Now, throughout the centuries, different empires have come and disrupted things. But typically, whoever would get in control, they would let the Jews and the Muslims and the Christians all kind of do their thing. And there's just kind of been an agreement and an understanding amongst them for a very long time. Now, in 1948, uh, when Israel became a nation, they actually lost the um, 
the Jewish quarters. They lost access to the Wailing Wall. They actually lost a lot in 1948. And then in 1967, they took it back over. They even took, that's when they actually took control of the Temple Mount. But the world governments basically demanded that they give it back to the Muslims because it was going to create, you know, another world war. And so they did even, at, uh, and a lot of Jews were upset by that. But now they've been kind of what they call the status quo. It's just like the situation is, is. But the reason things have not been peaceful in the last, you know, 75 years is um, the Zionist movement, it did, it just interrupted kind of a working situation that they had for a very long time. And so many Jews started coming in and started just kind of taking over everything that it greatly agitated and upset the Palestinians. And don't get me wrong, you know, the Palestinians, you know, they, they've got some problems. They've got some religious problems. They have a lot of cultural problems. Uh, they are violent people. They are wild. They are wild people. And so if, if a nation comes in and starts driving wild people out of their land, mm -hmm. we got to expect those wild people to do some pretty wild things. And that's exactly what mm -hmm. they've done. And so um, Israel's just really started moving very fast in the last 75 years and it has, it's overwhelmed the Palestinians. It's upset them greatly and they have lashed out in some very, very violent ways. But before Zionism, things were relative. They, they were, they were very peaceful among the three groups there. And there's mm -hmm. another thing too, that just shows these people are hypocrites. Why are they so anxious to see the Muslims get driven out of Jerusalem, but nobody's saying anything about all the Christians in Jerusalem. They've got two quarters of the city themselves, the Christian quarter and the Armenian quarters. Do these Jews supporting Christians, do they also, would they be, would they be okay with them slaughtering and massacring the Christians that are in mm -hmm. Jerusalem? If the land belongs to the Jews, you know, but at the yeah. end of the day, if I was in that Christian quarters, I would just give it to whoever. I don't care. We don't need that. We don't need Jerusalem. I, I followed Christ without the camp. I'll bear his reproach. I'll, I'm, I'll, I'll think about the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, not old Jerusalem. It's a city of bondage. Mm. Um, you talked, you, you, um, said in one of your videos or you brought up a uh, Luke 21, 20, um, and well, people use this as, um, um, a sign of prophecy, uh, when it comes to Israel, Luke 21, 20, Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. And they're saying that, you know, now we might see the, the nations coming against Israel. And this is a sign of prophecy. You, in your opinion, that's already taking place. Yes. Yeah. That, that happened, that happened in 70 AD during the, during the Jewish Roman war, they literally were compassed about with armies and uh, yeah, the temple was destroyed. Uh, over a million Jews died during that time. It was a great time of trouble. And mm -hmm. people, they, they read the Olivet Discourse and they get confused because we see Jesus Christ returning in the clouds, gathering his elect. We see a lot of wonderful things happening, um, you, know, in, uh, you know, in the Olivet Discourse, but people ignore the fact that that's what would happen if they were ready. Because it says in Luke 21, 36, watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the son of man. They weren't worthy. They didn't escape those things. They, they didn't watch. They did smite the fellow servants. 
They did all the things that Jesus said not to do. And so there was no deliverance uh, during that time. It was a absolutely horrific time in their history. Okay. Also, um, I think it talks about Israel being trodden under the until the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We're in the period of the Gentiles, right? Or no? Well, no. So, yeah, that, that's kind of your, yeah, the, the time of the Gentiles was them going and trotting underfoot the city for okay. three, the three and a half years. So that already happened. And there, there's a difference between the times of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles. Uh, there's a lot of dispensational language, language that confuses people, and they'll talk about how we're in the Gentile church age now and all that kind of stuff. But um, now that that already happened too. People don't realize a lot more prophecy has been fulfilled yeah. than they want to realize. Hmm. When it comes to Zionism, some people watching this um, don't know exactly how to define Zionism. How, how would you define Zionism? Yeah, Zionism, it is. It's, it's a movement to bring Jews back to the land of Israel. They, uh, they do, uh, as a religion, uh, they believe that the Messiah is going to come someday and he's going to build the, t build the temple. The Jews aren't trying to build the temple. That's what that's a rumor from Christians. No, the Jews believe when the Messiah comes that he will build the temple. And so um, many of them believe, not all of them, but the Zionist Jews, you know, they believe that if enough of them come back to the land, if they kind of prepare themselves, then it'll usher in this messianic kingdom where all the world will, you know, follow this Messiah and become believers and all that kind of stuff. And so um, they do think they're kind of help bring about the return of, or the, not the return, but the coming of the Messiah by getting people back to the land. Here's the problem that they have. This is a problem they've had throughout their history. In fact, at the Temple Mount Institute, a Jewish man there told us, the problem that we have is Jewish people, we always are content to just stay where we're at. And that's how they were throughout history. You know, even after they left Egypt, a lot of them wanted to go back. During the times after the Babylonian captivity, a lot of them didn't return to the land. They've always been content wherever they are at. Zionism needs them all to go back to that land. And so uh, now I get in trouble for saying this, but I had... I, you know, I had a rabbi, a non-Zionist, you know, Jew, Orthodox Jew on my program, and he will tell you this too. This is just a historical fact, but many, uh, much of the Jewish persecution throughout the last, you know, hundred or so years has been brought about by Zionists. Zionists have been behind it. They, mm -hmm. and they will do that. They have done that historically, where they have persecuted their own people or allowed things to happen to their own people because uh, they need they need them to need to go to Israel. And so, um, you know, after World War II, that's when Zionism really exploded. That's when they really had a large group coming back because the Holocaust was so bad in Europe. You know, so they had such a terrible time in Europe during that time that are like, you know, we need a safe place to go. So a lot of them started going to Israel, but they're just not, they're not doing it fast enough. They're, they're not doing it fast enough. 
And so is the Israelis, they're continuing to build these settlements. Uh, they're kind of slowly taking over all the Palestinian territory, which is, you know, aggravating the Palestinians, but they do, they need, they need the people going back to that land. And so, uh, Zionism, it is, it's, it's about, uh, bringing Israel back to the land. And according even to Judaism, if you watch the interview I did with the Orthodox Jew, uh, he said they're forbidden to try getting out of exile or anything like that until the Messiah comes. So um, it is, and they understand, they recognize, they have dealt with persecution from Jews, yeah. you know, because, uh, you know, they won't cooperate with these things. And they teach Jews not to, you know, move back to Israel. And so uh, I have no doubt in my mind that this rise in anti-Semitism, it is, it's, it's by design. And mm. I, I feel bad for Jews right now because you do, you have a lot of them just, they're just wanting to live their life, you know, living in America, living in a lot of other countries. But then all this stuff that's going on in the Middle East, it's stirring everybody up. It's getting the world upset, making everybody mad at them. And yeah, they don't deserve to be attacked. You know, people should not be messing with Jews right now. It's not their fault what's going on over in Israel. You know, most of them are just trying to live lives, do whatever mm -hmm. over here. But um, the Zionism needs, it needs okay. anti-Semitism and it fuels it. So kind of like they're a false flag in themselves in a sense, like, okay. Yeah. Didn't want to use that term, but basically self-inflicted wounds in, in some sense. Pretty much. Um, okay. That, that's interesting. Um, do you know anything about the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud? A, a little bit. I've, um, you know, I've read things about it. I've never like read through it myself. Uh, I have a book that I, I, I've read some of it called Jesus in the Talmud. Um, but yeah, I do know it's the Babylonian Talmud. And the that's another thing people don't understand. The Judaism of today, even amongst the Orthodox Jews, even amongst the non-Zionist Jews, it's, it's not the Judaism of the Old Testament. It's the Judaism of, of Babylon. It's a, um, it's, it's Babylonian Judaism. And a, a lot of people believe that, um, mystery Babylon and revelation is referring to Jerusalem. And I think there's some really good, I think they've got some really strong arguments in favor of that. What they are teaching does not resemble the Judaism of the old Testament. People, I, I used to think this way and, and people would tell me that, you know, Jews, they basically are like Christians without the new Testament. Well, not really. You know, Jesus said, you know, if you don't, if you don't believe him, if you don't have him, you don't have the father, you know, you've got. And so, um, there's even their, even their practices, the way they do things, it doesn't resemble what we see in the old Testament. And so and the reality is you can't have even old Testament Judaism without the temple. You can't do it. You can't, mm -hmm. you can't do old Testament Judaism without the Levitical priesthood. So, you know, it, everything they have today, it is, it's a, uh, it's a complete counterfeit that is not connected with the, the Judaism or the Israel 
of the Bible. It's a new phenomenon. People act like Judaism is an older religion than Christianity. Wrong. Wrong. No, the Christianity is Judaism reformed. The religion that they started is a new thing. It it mm -hmm. does the Jews were told specifically by Moses, a prophet shall the Lord raise up unto your own brethren, like unto me, unto him shall ye hear. Part of Judaism was supposed to be accepting the Messiah when he came. They didn't do it. They started a new religion. Jacob, when he blessed Judah, you know, he said, you know, the scepter should not depart, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. They were told to follow after that, that Messiah. They did not do it. So they started a new religion in the first century when they rejected Christ. And John uh, referred to it. He called it Antichrist, said we shouldn't support it. And he called it the synagogue of Satan in the book of Revelation. It says those who say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. They're the synagogue of mm. Satan. Wow. A uh, few more things. You also, um, in one video you did, um, and I've, I've heard this scripture used as well, Romans 11, 26 through 29. I was listening mm. to a podcast the other day. I think it was David Wheaton, and I guess was talking about um, why we should support Israel. And he was, mm -hmm. and in that scripture it says, and so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. Um, and, you know, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sake sakes uh, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. When it talks about the um, um, for their uh, because of election, they are beloved for the father's sake. I heard this mm. guy say because the Jewish people, God made a covenant with the Jewish people. They have been elected, even though they might be enemies of the gospel, they are still elected because of that covenant. How, how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, he's just wrong about that. So first off, Romans 9, 10, 11, it's all kind of one subject. It's dealing with you know, Israel and their salvation. And in Romans chapter 9, he's, um, he says, not, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall they see be called that is they which are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted for the seed. So what he was saying, what he was doing right there, he starts out the chapter talking about how he has this great sorrow. He could wish himself were a curse for his brethren, according to the flesh, talking about physical Israel. He said, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. All those covenants, the promises, they were made for Israel, but Paul recognized that they have no claim on them and that they were in trouble. They were under the wrath of God because they have rejected Jesus Christ. And so he's, he's clarifying, he's saying, not as, even though these things were made for Israel, it's not that the word of God has taken none effect. God's promises will be fulfilled. But here's what he was explaining. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Just because somebody's from a physical nation doesn't mean they have claim to the promises because Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But Isaac was the one who received the promise. Isaac was the one who was of God. So when we get to Romans chapter 11, he's 
talking about physical Israel, and he says, hath God cast away his people? People say, see, that proves God's not done with them. No, he's saying it just means they can still be saved. He said, even so, at this present time, uh, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul used himself as proof that Israel or Jews were not cast away. They could still be saved. He's like, God saved me. And, and th those who are of faith, they are the elect. And so when we get to uh, Romans chapter 11, he talks about how they were cut out of the wild olive tree, but we were grafted in among them that believed. After he explains all that, how physical Israel was broken off from the olive tree, you being a wild olive tree, you were grafted in. And then he goes on to say, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be coming or until a multitude of Gentiles come in and become a part of that covenant of the olive tree. And then he says, and so all Israel shall be saved. The promise that God made to Israel will be fulfilled, but it's not going to be fulfilled through an ethnic group. The promise was never to an ethnic group. The promise was to a people of promise, a people who are of faith. And so he says, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. So those who are of Israel that are only physical, who had rejected Christ, he said they're enemies, but as touching the election, they're beloved for the Father's sake. Those like Paul, those like Peter, those who have believed, they are the elect, they are beloved. So we don't want to just have this attitude with Jews that God doesn't want anything to do with them. No, even if they're lost, God still loves them and he will still save them, and he will graft them into the olive tree. And those who he saves understand the deliverer came from Zion, and he turned ungodliness away from Jacob. Peter talked about that in Acts 3. It's already happened. And so the thing is, when a Jew gets saved, he's cleansed. We don't hold the fact that he is a Jew against him. We don't treat him like a second-class citizen in the church. In Christ, there's neither, there's neither Jew nor Greek. So uh, once a Jew gets saved, you know, they're, they're covered. They're, they're mm -hmm. under the blood. It doesn't matter what they did as a nation. It's under the blood of Christ. And so they are, they, and they are beloved for the father's sake. Talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God still, God will still save Jews, but everybody ignores that part. If they abide, not still in unbelief, okay. you've got to believe on Christ. Okay, because um, some people make it seem as if when they say that, you know, support Israel, support Israel, um, when it comes to that scripture, they make it seem as if, well, because of their uh, physical lineage, they are elected, even if they're not saved. Yeah. So it's no, that's almost ridiculous. Like, okay. Yeah, so there's, no ba there's no biblical basis for that. But here's the thing, too. Let's just give it to them. Let's say that Jews are special just because of their bloodline. Okay, let's, let's just give them that. Well... Most Christians would agree they're not saved because, and they're going to go, if they die, they're going to go to hell because they haven't believed on Christ. So why would we support them in their rebellion? Some will even say they're in rebellion, that they're not right with God. So again, if, 
If the writer of Hebrews told them to follow Christ without the camp, bearing his reproach, why would we support them in their continued rebellion against God as they try to return to the land, as they're trying to rebuild the temple? That's not what God called them to do. They've been called to believe on Christ. If, if you want to support them, you should support them with the gospel. That's it. You can be nice to them. You can do good things for them if, if you want to, to try to give you an inroad into giving them the gospel, but we should never support them in their rebellion. I mean, we've been commanded to do good to all men. We're supposed to increase in love toward all men. And I think it's a good practice to go and try to do nice things for people. But if I see some dude out there mugging a woman, I'm not going to go help him out because I'm, well, I'm just trying to be a blessing to him. Uh, no, he's in the process of sinning. I should go try to stop him. I should withstand him in that situation. But if it's a if it's a neutral situation where they're not doing anything wrong and you want to be a blessing to Jews, by all means, go ahead and do it. But Christians today are literally supporting them in their rebellion. That is wrong. There's so, no they do not need that land. Yeah, I've um I've had conversations with some friends and I had pointed out that um Tel Aviv has a one of the most popular gay pride uh parades, which I didn't know about. And I had mentioned it to a friend and I think his attitude was like, Well, I, I see that you're pointing out, you know, the secular government or lifestyle in Israel, but you know, Nevertheless, we're commanded to support Israel. Um, and so, but yet, you know, those same people will criticize Joe Biden or the Obama administration from promoting homosexuality or mm -hmm. the government promoting homosexuality. But if Netanyahu tells the people of Israel, let's stand in solidarity with the LGBTQ community, he'll get a pass, you see, yeah. in, in a sense. I just uh, saw a thing that said there's like one in four in Tel Aviv identifies as LGBT or whatever. But you know, here's the thing too. Okay, Leviticus 18:23 or 22, thou shalt not lie with mankind with womankind is an abomination. Goes on in verse 28 or 27, for all these abominations had the men of the land done that were before you and the land is defiled, that the land spew not you out also when ye defile it as it spewed out the nations that were before you. That's mm. why that's why they got driven out of the land. You know why they got spewed out of the land? Because of sin, because of abominations, the land spewed them out. And I, that interview I did with that Orthodox Jew, he was talking about how there's an extreme level of righteousness that they needed to have to possess the land. And here's the thing he doesn't realize. He's absolutely right. You do have to have an extreme level of righteousness. Here's where, But here's where he's wrong. He thinks you can achieve that righteousness through the works of the law. No, we can't do that. We cannot achieve righteousness through the works of the law. We can only have righteousness through faith in Christ. And that's a, that's why, you know, bless his heart, he needs to believe on Christ if he ever wants to have any claim on that inheritance that was made for Israel. He must, must believe on Christ. You cannot find righteousness you cannot obtain the promises, the inheritances through the things of the temple. Jesus Christ mm. is the only way. Yeah. How much time do you have left? Uh, I've got I've got another okay. 20, 30 minutes. Okay. I'm not going to keep you too to you. long. Okay. 
won't keep you too long. Um, so also, what 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 was the opinion of the the church fathers in the early church regarding um, the reestablishment of the state of Israel or this particular topic? Because from what I've heard, this is a recent um, school of thought. What what did the early church or church fathers say about this? Well, I've not read anything from like the early church fathers about this. I mean, it's very clear um, they understood who the Jews were. In fact, you know, if you go and you read uh, what some of them said, I mean, it, I mean, they, those guys would be labeled anti-Semitic big time. You know, uh, Martin Luther uh, wrote a book called "The Jews and Their Lies," and he had some pretty harsh things to say about them. Now, I do think there were some people. Uh, maybe like in the 1700s, I remember reading about, I, I could be wrong. I, I, I don't want to give the names because I might be wrong, but people didn't talk about it that much until um, the rise of um, dispensationalism through guys like John Nelson Darby, uh, who founded the Plymouth Brethren. Uh, he is the father of dispensationalism. He's the one that kind of came up with that. You had C.I. Schofield that got on board with that and he put uh, those things in his notes that greatly influenced uh, many people. And then you had uh, Clarence Larkin, who wrote a book in the early 1900s called Dispensational Truth. And so uh, those three men are the ones that really got it big. I'm sure there were remnants, examples in small places somewhere uh, that believed in that believed in that. But most of the stuff that you see, it did it. It surfaced in the late 1800s and got really big in the early 1900s. But, you know, here's the thing, too, though. In certain segments, even that held that belief, it wasn't really that big of a deal um, until the 70s. You know, hmm. the 70s is when the hype went nuts. Again, late great planet Earth, some of these B movies like Thief in the Night and stuff it greatly influenced a generation and you had the rise of the TV preachers and the radio preachers. And these guys, they used sensationalism and stuff and got people really excited and going crazy over all these things. And there was, there was a whole generation of preachers that heard a lot of bad doctrine and that went completely unchallenged in the mainstream. I'm sure there were guys out there saying, hold on. You know, there were guys even in the, fundamental bats were like John R. Rice that were speaking out against Zionism during his day. But these guys, they were drowned out by the big names. Men like John Hagee, uh, he influenced a lot of good preachers uh, in the 90s. Everybody knew he was a Pentecostal and he wasn't a fundamental Baptist and had some weird teachings and stuff, but he was a, a very polished speaker. He was very mm -hmm. enjoyable to very listen passionate. to. He was very interesting. Animated. And, uh, and so... Um, he looked like a Baptist. He kind of acted like one and people, preachers all listen to him. They, they listen yeah. to him and he influenced them. They don't want to admit it. And it wasn't until probably in the two thousands when he started getting like really radical and he claimed basically was claiming Jews don't even need to get saved. They already have their own covenant with Christ. And then a lot of Baptists are like, whoa, 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 time out. But here's the thing though. Even you, if you go back, I think it was what, six or seven years ago. John Hagee got everybody all hyped up about the blood moons and mm -hmm. Baptists were going around teaching everybody about the blood moon tetrad and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And nothing happened. 
Yeah. Nothing. That was John, John Hagee. I forgot who he was. He stole it from, but John Hagee made it big and Baptist went and parroted that and made themselves look like idiots. Uh, and so, yeah. um, you know, that, yeah. Television that, TV preachers <laughs> really messed a, a whole generation up. Yeah. That's how I first came across. That's what led me down the whole prophecy, um, rabbit hole, just listening to John Hagee and his books and very animated on stage. Um, what, what would you say is like the, if you could give me a number on the percentage of churches and pastors that are in disagreement with your theology, what, what number would you put on that? Well, uh, I'm definitely in the minority. Um, fortunately people, you know, uh, people who believe like I do that they're growing, uh, it's, it's a growing it's a growing thing. See, I'm I'm not real familiar with a lot of the world outside the independent fundamental Baptist world. Um, that that's what I'm from. That's really all I know. I know there's people who have similar views on Israel when it comes to reform theology and stuff like that. But um, unfortunately, those people are uh, they're so intimidated by being called anti-Semitic and all that kind of stuff that they get really quiet during these times when we kind of need them speaking out the truth about this. But um, in the independent fundamental Baptist world, uh, we're probably 5% if, if that, but I think, I think it's growing because here's the thing about it is you, the people that believe like I do, we're very vocal and we are spreading the truth on this. Uh, A lot of your IFB, is kind of, they don't know where they're at. So they're being very quiet. And those mm-hmm. people are, are probably going to come our way in the long term. And some have made, many have made shifts. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot that have made shifts. But then the radical group, though, the radical, rabid pro Israel ones, they're becoming less and less all the time, too. So um, most people are just by default pro Israel. They don't mm-hmm. know why. It's the same thing too. They're by default. They believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Everyone who comes out of Bible college, all of them, if if, if you go to Independent Fundamental Baptist Bible College, you come out of it pre-trib. You go talk to ninety-nine percent of those people who came out of Bible college and ask them why you pre-trib. They have no idea. But in the post-trib world, you talk to anyone who identifies as post-trib, they can tell you why. You talk to anyone that believes the truth about the Jews, they can tell you why, where the people on the other side, all they got is Genesis 12. Well, then we're going to take them. We're going to beat them over the head with Galatians three and show them that they have no idea what they're talking about. Some people might interpret what you said as far as um, people changing their minds about Israel. Some people might interpret that as being a sign of the end times because now the world is against Israel. (laughs) Right. Well, here's the thing. I'll say it's a sign of the end times because it's the spirit of Antichrist. We were warned that the spirit of Antichrist should come. Well, what is the spirit of Antichrist? Uh, You know, I've literally heard, oh, what was it I saw the other day on Twitter where uh, basically a guy was claiming that being against Israel is the spirit of Antichrist. It's like, are are you kidding me? Are you absolutely kidding me? No, you... You obviously don't know what the spirit of Antichrist is. Go read First and Second John. He tells us it's those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. Israel mm-hmm. denies that Jesus is the Christ. 
That's the spirit mm -hmm. of Antichrist. So when you have Christians in mass supporting an Antichrist religion, system, government, to me, that is a sign of end times because we see that the world is going to wonder after the beast. The world is going to worship the beast. And when you read, I used to read Revelation. It's like, you know, where's all the opposition going to be? And I, and you know what? I'm still wondering that, you know, because Christians mm. are going along with it. And so it's, yeah, either of us can say that, but uh, mm. th what they're preaching actually resembles the spirit of Antichrist in the Bible. What we're preaching does not. Wow, you, you just made that made a point in Revelations when you talked about the, the opposition. Um, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, uh, like you said earlier, a lot of people aren't biblically literate. I sometimes I, I would include myself in that as well. I mean, I'm still coming along trying to understand. Um, last few points you talk about the Olivet discourse. So, again, growing up, going to church. You know, and hearing you speak, I interviewed um, Chuck Baldwin as well. So um, a lot of these things are somewhat n new to me because I grew up um, interpreting things this way and being taught this way. Um, but in with Matthew 24 talks about the, the sign of the times, wars, rumors of wars, the abomination of desolation, nation will rise against nation, false Christ. And then... It also says this generation will by no means pass away until these things take place. When I used to read that, I always, I was always confused because I said, well, he was talking to that specific generation. And I kept asking myself, did those things take place? But then I was taught, well, this is a prophecy of the future and the, the end times. So how do you uh, interpret that? Right. So what people have to understand about prophecy is prophecy is not just looking into a crystal ball and foretelling the future with, with most prophecy, there is also, there's often a call to repentance. Uh, some, the way I often illustrate it, I illustrate it this way. If I leave, if I'm going to leave the home for a while, say I'm going to go on a trip for a week I, uh, with my wife, th this is the illustration I use. I'll prophesy to my kids and I can, I, I can say it like this. I see children excited at the return of their father as he comes home, bearing gifts, bringing them candy, bringing them toys because these kids were obedient to their father's instruction. They kept the house clean. They behaved. They didn't fight with each other and they received their father with great joy. But I also see children weeping, crying in fear because they see their father approaching. And he comes not with gifts, but he comes with a paddle. They've got a good old fashioned spanking coming their way because they fought with their brothers and sisters. They trashed the house. They didn't listen. They didn't follow the instructions, you know? And so, you know, both of those are prophecies. I'm giving two possibilities, you know, well, what's, what's it going to be? Is it going to be the happy kids or the sad kids? Is it going to be the gifts? Or is it going to be the spanking? Depends on what they do. And so the, the thing with prophecy though, here's what's unique about it is Throughout the prophecies, we we often will see, and we almost always see, uh, these wonderful things prophesied. You know, when Christ returns, there's a gathering of the elect, all that kind of stuff. But the question is, where do these things find their fulfillment? 
And there's many prophecies from the Old Testament that were directed at that generation. For example, the famous virgin birth prophecy, for unto us, are, um, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. And then it says, butter and honey shall he eat, uh, that he may renew to refuse the evil and choose the good. And before he, I'm not quoting this exactly right, but he's like, both the, the land will be forsaken of both her kings. Well, wait a minute. What's that about? That actually happened back during the time of Isaiah. But the thing is, the virgin birth wasn't fulfilled until hundreds of years later at the coming of Christ. And so there's a lot of prophecies that are like that, that they were directed at a generation, but they never found fulfillment until way into the future because of disobedience. And so it's the mm -hmm. same thing with Matthew 24. Jesus is prophesying to that generation, warning them of bad that's going to come. And the bad was going to come one way or the other. The bad did come, but we see two possible outcomes in there. We see one where Christ is coming in the clouds. He's gathering the elect, but we see another one though, where he's punishing people. And, uh, and so, and it says, um, in the end of Matthew 24, it says, but, and if that evil servant shall say in my, in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him and an hour that he is not aware of and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that is what they got. Now, many people insist that both had to happen. The good had to happen for the believers and the bad had to happen as well. Not necessarily because what we're seeing there, it was directed at Israel that was trying to obtain righteousness through the law and they didn't find it. They were not acceptable. When the tribulation came, when judgment came, they were not ready. They were not acceptable. They died. Now, I do believe that passage will have a fulfillment in the future. So there's interpretation and there's application. The interpretation of that passage, Jesus is prophesying to that generation and he's warning them about things to come. And those things came and they got the ugly end of things. We can make application though, because in the future, Jesus Christ is going to come again. This time, there will be a people who are ready for him. Why? Not because they've been cleansed through the things of the temple, but because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's going to be a people that are ready, not because they've just been so without sin in their life, but because they've had their cleanse, uh, their sins cleansed by the blood of Christ because they are, they are of faith. That's why we're ready. That's why we overcome. Who is he that overcometh? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Christ. He's the overcomer. So... Again, I do. I believe that this um, there's an application that we can make in the future, but there's what I call Old Test Covenant eschatology that ended very bad because it was based on the law. But then there's a new covenant eschatology that ends very good because it's based on Jesus Christ. And I believe that's what we see in Revelation. So in Revelation, there's a lot of similarities of things that are spoken of that we see referenced in old covenant eschatology. Mm -hmm. And so people see those similarities and they're like, it's talking about the exact same thing. Well, no, because there's some differences in there too. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 37, we see after the resurrection, it talks about God 
uh, putting his tabernacle in the midst of Israel and dwelling with Israel and being their God and them being his people forever. That's what we see in Ezekiel 37. But in mm -hmm. Revelation chapter 21, we see something similar, but we also see something different. We see uh, the new Jerusalem coming down. We see it saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they should be his people and God himself shall be with them. So we see something that's actually, and, uh, and he will be their God. So the same promise that was given to Israel, we see God saying this about the world in the new heaven and new earth. And mm. he even goes as far as to say, and I saw no temple therein. All right, because under the new and better covenant, there's no need for a temple anymore. Where if you go to Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, it's talking about this other temple that was never built. Again, yeah. The, the the prophecies in Ezekiel had contingencies on them. Israel okay. did not fulfill those contingencies. So we can find promises in there. We can find elements in those prophecies that apply to our future. Mm -hmm. But we understand that it's not exactly the same because those things were based on the old covenant. But Jesus brought in a new and better covenant that the Bible says in Hebrews has better promises. So mm. again, there's, there's similarities, but they're different. And you know, what's different. It's better. And it's better that it's not just for Israel. It's for the world. You know, and yeah. we have, the Bible says we have a better high priest, better sacrifices. There's a better temple. There's a better city. So everything's better in the new covenant. And what the Zionists are pushing for is an inferior covenant. It's an inferior, inferior promises an inferior inheritance, everything's better in the new covenant and all comes mm -hmm. through Christ. Gotcha. Wow. You know, listening to you, I'm saying to myself, man, I, I wish maybe more churches need to teach more, um, more about like hermeneutics and interpretation and actually have like, <laughs> well, here's the problem. You, 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 what you just said, I agree a hundred percent, but here, here's the way, this is the problem with Baptists. You said they need to teach more hermeneutics. Here's what they're going to do. They're going to pull out this same thing. First semester in Bible college principles of biblical hermeneutics. This is full of garbage. <laughs> and here's the thing about it. Every one of these advanced principles of biblical hermeneutics, there's exceptions to everything. Nothing can take the place of what Paul told Timothy in second Timothy two 15. He said, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. No one can do that for you. Every mm -hmm. one of these principles, they can be applied in certain places, but you can't do it all the time. Everybody's trying to find an easy way to rightly divide. No, you, there's, there is no easy way to do it. You have to put in the study. You have to put in the work yourself. And that's yeah. what these people are trying to avoid. And so I, I agree with you. They need to teach those things, but they've got to stop trying to spoon feed it with these lazy methods and these flawed methods in these books. And they, uh, it, it's all about what, what I've had to try to do. And I'm still trying to improve myself in this is you do need to literally just try to wipe your brain from your preconceived ideas, from your dispensationalism and use the words of God. Let the words of God form your thinking. 
God preserved his word for us. He gave us a book. That book had words written that were intended to put thoughts in our mind and in our heart because God wants us to believe right. Mm -hmm. Where the confusion is coming from on these things are a lot of times from extra biblical words that yeah. if I can use my own word, then I can attach a definition to it. It's, it's too hard to mess with the words of God because they're good. They're right. And context, if I try to read, if I try to redefine one of God's word, the context of that passage is always going to prove me wrong. But if I come up with an extra biblical word, then I can attach my own definition to it. I can make it sound somewhat like it's based in the Bible and I can confuse people more. And so that's why we use terms like rapture, um, which yeah, I know what it means, but again, a lot of people are attaching things to it that are false. Um, yeah. And then too, even when people use Bible words, they're not using the way that God does. For example, tribulation. People, theologians are not using that word the way the Bible uses that word. You know, that you hear tribulation, think seven years, where'd you get that? You know, so the words of God did not explain that to you, but, you know, Clarence Larkin and these other books did. So yeah. it, it, you, you, nobody can get away with not doing their own personal study. You have to do it. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of people who say that they've studied for years and years and still have bad theology. So, <laughs> uh, well, it's yeah. And cause here's how they, here's how they study. They read this and I'm not against reading other books. Yeah. This is, yeah. yeah, this, this Clarence Larkin's dispensational truth, this messed up a lot of people, but that's what they think studying is. And again, you, you can do that. You, you, you can read, you can glean from other people, but you know, it, there's something about just letting the words of God form your thinking. And mm. a something I've been looking into too is just our end times lingo that we have. If you read books before dispensationalism, they spoke of last things way different than we do. They use yeah. much different terminology. And so it can be very confusing because there's a language that we're all used to. They had a different language uh, back then and how they explained things. And, uh, and so you do, you like when I say I'm post-trib, people hear post-seven years. Well, I, I don't use the word tribulation the way Clarence Larkin did. I use it the way Jesus did. And he mm. said after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will turn, be turned to blood. That's the sixth seal. The tribulation are the first six seals. The trumpets and vials are God's wrath. And people, mm. theologians have declared the tribulation and the wrath the same thing. But that's not yeah. what the Bible does. So letting the words of God form your thinking, it's revolutionary. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for all that explanation. I think I'm, I need uh, to do a part two because I did want to get into the rapture and tribulation as well. So I definitely got to follow up with you. But um, Pastor Tommy, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. And um, I will touch base with you in the future. Um, where can people find you? Yeah, uh, follow my prophecy channel. It's called The Spirit of Prophecy. Uh, it's on YouTube. I'm on uh, most of the podcast platforms out there. I also have another channel, uh, Liberty Baptist Church, Rock Falls, Illinois. I have all my preaching and stuff on there. So, yeah, check those out. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Tommy McMurtry 2. 
And so I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. And even if you don't like me, uh, it'll be entertaining because I, I don't mind arguing with people and, uh, yeah, I'm usually stirring something up out there. Yeah. Well, it's a good sign that you're still on YouTube, you know, and you haven't yeah, been reported. I, I've gotten a lot of strikes on my Liberty Baptist church channel, but I've managed to space them out where okay. my new channel, I haven't got any strikes yet. So I yeah. had one video taken down, but I didn't get a strike. So we're doing good so far. Okay. Well, hopefully the ADL doesn't say anything. So. <laughs> I hope not. I'm already on. I'm already on their list somehow. Neither one of us are anti-Semitic. Just to make that clear once again, people probably. I love Jewish people. There you I go. love Catholics. I don't like Catholicism, but I love the people. I want the best for them. And you know, I I enjoy talking with Jewish people. Um, I do, man. I I have a gospel presentation re ready to go specifically geared towards Jewish people, but it is hard to get an opportunity to present the gospel to them where they, yeah. they do not want to listen. And, uh, mm. but I, I want to do it. I want to see him get saved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again for your time. Yes, sir. Appreciate you um, having me on. God bless. Absolutely.